this Christmas, I'm grappling with a challenge of following the wild goose. That, that sounds strange, but I'm, I'm drawing this series from a book by Mark Batterson that I read not long ago, Wild Goose Chase. It's a good read. I recommend it. Anyone? And he explains in the book, I'm going to read it again, just in his opening lines, how the wild goose chase, why he uses that term for his book. The Celtic Christians had a name for the Holy Spirit that has always intrigued me. They called him Angeidglas, or the wild goose. I love the imagery and implications. The name hints at the mysterious nature of the Holy Spirit. Much like a wild goose, the Spirit of God cannot be tracked or tamed. An element of danger and an air of unpredictability surround him. And while the name may sound a little sacrilegious at first earshot, I cannot think of a better description of what it's like to pursue the Spirit's leading through life than wild goose chase. I think the Celtic Christians were on to something that institutionalized Christianity has missed out on. And I wonder if we have clipped the wings of the wild goose and settled for something less, much less, than what God originally intended for us. That's his setup for the title. When I read the book, it was one of those books that you look forward to getting back to. Not all books are like that. And when I closed up the final lid of the book, I almost instantly, I think the very day that I finished reading it, I had an awareness of how in the Christmas story, various characters overlaid Mark Batterson's subjects, the very subjects he was dealing with. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm taking that those subjects. Um, I'm not. He didn't deal with Christmas or the Christmas characters or anything like that. But I'm taking those elements out of his book, and that's why I put the that up on the title there uh, to acknowledge where I'm drawing this from. And I'm seeing a part of the Christmas story overlaid with that. This morning, I want to talk about the trap of assumptions. How assumptions can keep us from following the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that God is constantly challenging our assumptions, the things we assume. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the things that we rationalize to keep us from really considering the things we don't understand. And we just kind of tend to put it over here in a category and assume something about it or something we don't want to deal with, something we fear dealing with or that makes us uncomfortable to deal with. We just kind of put it over un- into a category of an assumption and that keeps us from dealing with it anymore. We assume that we are incompetent because someone didn't choose us for a particular role or a particular place or a particular job. We assume God has rejected us because we didn't see an answer to our prayers, maybe over a very, very long period of time. 
We assume someone is avoiding us because they don't make eye contact with us or they didn't greet us or they didn't call us or they returned our call or they didn't return our text or something else. Or they unfriended us. That's, that's the newest thing. Hmm. Assumptions are a way that we deal with what we don't understand or what we don't like, what we don't want to deal with. Batterson writes about the faith of a child and how children don't have that, that, that bulwark of assumptions to get through. They just happily believe in God. They believe in the miraculous. They simply appreciate the mystery. We tend to draw back from the mystery of God. Children tend to be very happy to enter into and talk about the mystery of God. They don't have a problem with it. We do. We do. Because it, it's hard to categorize and put into our assumptions about God. Um, let me read to you that, that, a, a little bit of that portion where he talks about children and how they don't have the same assumptions we do. According to the research of Rolf Smith, children ask 125 probing questions per day per day. And any parent of a two-year-old can verify and say, yep, that's about right. Adults, on the other hand, ask only a half dozen probing questions each day. That means that somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions per day. Put them under assumption. Just put it over there under assumptions. When my son Parker was five years old, I did a little research project of my own. I was intrigued by the sheer volume and variety of Parker's questions, so I kept track of them for one week. Here's a sampling of the questions I fielded that week. Why do whales live in the water? Why do planes go over cars? Why do caterpillars turn into butterflies? Why do stars come out at night? Why do houses have doors? My favorite question was, why do horses bounce? I said, you mean trot. Parker said, no, I mean bounce. <laughs> That's an imagination. As part of my experiment, I wanted Parker to know that there isn't always an easy answer to every question. So I decided to turn the tables and ask him a question. I thought long and hard to come up with a question that would stump my five-year-old. The last question I could come up with was, Parker, why does it rain? Without a moment's hesitation, my five-year-old lowered his voice to a let-me-tell-you-the-way-the-world-works tone and replied, because everything is thirsty. Hey, I tried. <laughs> he said, I tried. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, the Bible says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't shut Him down. Don't clip His wings. Don't harbor attitudes that Keep the Holy Spirit from keeping you from pressing into what God is doing. My Christmas example of getting us to the root of some assumptions in our own life and maybe that we have to deal with, is look at the work of the Holy Spirit in Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, they're not right on as part of the Christmas story, but the reason 
Luke puts them, puts John and John's birth and his parents in chapter 1, and it leads right into the Christmas story in chapter 2, is because John the Baptist was the pretext, uh, prologue, foreword, foreword is probably a better word, foreword of Jesus and the kingdom of God. So Luke puts him right there just before the Christmas story. So it's Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. I need to just leave these glasses on today, don't I? There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the altar of incense. Uh, excuse me, at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. John will be great in the sight of the Lord. First of all, I, I want us to notice the assumptions, th three, just, just three of the assumptions that we see in that passage can defy the promise of God. In our life. The first assumption is that their righteous lives seem to have no effect upon their reality. It's like I'm living blameless before it says blameless. I'm living blameless before God. I'm following his word. I'm doing everything right. It seems to have no effect on my reality of barrenness. The problem that they faced seem to be unmovable. So the assumption that we are caused to dwell on is since it hasn't happened, it must not be God's will. Right? How many of us have gotten there? Yeah. They'd live righteously. They followed the Word. Just by the very fact that he was a priest and she was a daughter of Aaron in Aaron's lineage, you know that they read the Word together, rehearsed the Word, God's promises often with one another, but the barrenness remained. Barrenness remained. It's easy, it's easy to make the assumption of failure or self-condemnation when we have very purposefully followed the Lord. First assumption was my righteous living, doing the right thing God's way doesn't seem to have much effect on my life. 
Same problems remain. Assumption number two. We're too old. Too old. It says both were well advanced in years. The window seems to have passed. You know, we look at it. So when the window passes, then is when we fall back on an assumption. The window's passed. So we make an assumption. Well, the window's passed. Apparently, it's no longer feasible. No longer feasible. But we're never too old. And by the way, we're never too young to go on a wild goose chase to follow the Lord. It's interesting that God had a pattern of this with older ones in the Bible, didn't He? You know, Joseph, Mary's husband, um, is, was, is thought to be a lot older than she was. Um, we have no record of him past when Jesus was 12 years old. And after that, it just says Mary. So Joseph, it's thought, and, and there are other, other reasons for thinking that as well uh, by commentators and, and students of the Word, and they, they think that he was considerably older. Moses was 80, and God called him. Abraham. Abraham was 75, and God told him that he was going to have descendants like the stars of the sky. Now there's something, I read that, there's something interesting there in that passage in Genesis 15 that I want to point out to you. Because Abraham must have struggled with the age issue. Because he said, Lord, you haven't given me any offspring. I'm 75. And now it's not feasible anymore. It's the thought. So in Genesis 15, it says this, God brought him outside. God brought him outside. God said, Abraham, get outside your tent, buddy. I'm going to take you on a field trip. Now, you notice that he was in his tent, and God brought him out of his tent so he could break through the ceiling of Abraham's assumptions. Count the stars, Abraham. Now that must have taken a while. <laughs> Didn't say he counted them all. But God said that. He said, Abraham, um, go ahead, count the stars. God had to get Abraham outside the tent so he could get freed from the assumption that everything that takes place is going to be right here in this tent. God said there's, a, there, there's a, a lot more going on than what is in this tent. And I want to show you. Zacharias and Elizabeth had to get past the assumption that they were too old. They were too old. Inside that tent, Abraham became totally fixated on his age, 75. Assumption number three is their prayers didn't matter. The angel said, Zacharias, don't be afraid. The Lord has heard your prayers. Your prayers heard. When we start assuming 
that God isn't listening or God doesn't care, we open the door to fear. And fear displaces faith. When fear comes in, it displaces faith. Faith moves aside. Now, that's just three assumptions. But those and other assumptions can undermine a faith which is supposed to do this according to Jesus' teaching. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because where that scripture says, ask, seek, knock, it literally in the Greek means keep on doing it. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. So as I read through this again, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and I looked at it, and I asked myself the question, what do Zacharias and Elizabeth show us about how to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled? What do they show us about that? How can I avoid the landmines of assumptions which begin to limit God in the time when I'm not seeing what I think God has spoken to me, what God has shown me. How, how do I walk through that? And I got five, five things. The first is keep on walking in righteousness. Keep on walking. Righteousness can simply be translated especially when you're talking about someone that's in the Old Testament context, as rightness. If you just think of it that way, when you think of it as the Hebrews thought of it, rightness. The Hebrew understanding was not a theological understanding like we have. When we talk about righteousness, if you ask Christians today about righteousness, they say, my righteousness is in Christ. Because that's a theological understanding. That's something that we get from the Word, from the teaching of the New Testament. That was not the Hebrew thinking. The Hebrew thinking of righteousness was you do the right thing. You do the right thing. It was a lot more straightforward. It was you're a doer of the Word. You're obedient to God's law. Now the danger of, of, of righteousness is pride. Because we can begin to think that... Um, because I am a doer of the word, because I am righteous, therefore God owes me answers to prayer or blessings. God, look what I've done. Look what I deserve. You owe me. I put my three quarters in the machine and I expect to get my coke out. But I've found in my short life that people, the smartest people, the smartest people in the world, are people who know how much they don't know. Smartest people. Just watch it in life. Smartest people on your job are people who know how much they don't know. I love the story of Socrates. It's, it's probably a myth, but it's, the, but it's a great story that is told of Socrates, how he came to the Oracle of Delphi in ancient Athens, where the sages were, the, the, those who would meet out 
great wisdom and knowledge there. And so Socrates comes to the Oracle of Delphi and he, he asks there, he's a young man, and he asks, who is the wisest of all men? I want to find the wisest of all men. And the sages at the Oracle of Delphi say to him, go and search for yourself. Find the wisest of all men. So Socrates goes throughout the known world. He travels far and wide, a couple of years, looking for the wisest of all men. And he, he's armed with questions to try to find the wisest of all men. He comes back after a very long, extensive journey to the sages at the Oracle of Delphi. And uh, they say, have you discovered the wisest of all men? And Socrates says, yes, I believe I have. And they say, who is the wisest of all men? And Socrates says, I have discovered that I am the wisest of all men. And the sages say, on what have you based this finding? And he said, well, I found that other men know not, but they know not that they know not. I know not, but I know that I know not. So he was the wisest of all men, he concluded. To avoid the assumption of pride and arrogance in our rightness, we have to know ourselves. We have to be aware of our lack and our need. Listen to this. The desire to know God has to be greater than our desire to be right. Got that? The desire to know God has to be greater than our desire to be right. Because we have a deep touch of sin in our hearts that wants to be right and better and first. And you, you have to swim upstream to keep that thing under submission. And it is in knowing God. So, we have to keep being obedient and walk in rightness, but not be too impressed with our obedience. Got it? Yeah. Have to be obedient, but not be too impressed with our obedience. Here's the, next, here's the second one. How do we wait? What does God call us to do? And I got this from their story as well. Stay in the Word. It says Zacharias and Elizabeth walked in the commandments ordinances of the Lord for all those decades. But to walk in them, you've got to know them. While we're waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, keep the Word before you. Don't desert the Word of God. When all the new scientific knowledge and all the new um, gizmos and all the new ways of thinking come out, get, go back to the Word. Go back to the Word. Let me just say this to you. Um, Judy and I read for quite a long time after we were married in the Old Testament. And we found so much enlightenment there that helped us get a fix on how the Lord was calling us to live and think and attitude to live. It keeps us from falling into deadly assumptions, the Word does, 
Um, especially assumptions like my ways are God's ways. My plans are God's plans. My thoughts are God's thoughts. Uh, when we pastored in Illinois, we, a, a number of our people went to a conference in St. Louis. I'm not going to say whose conference it was, because I think basically the guy's a good guy. But I think he was off on this. Um, he was teaching on the prophetic. And I had about 10 people in that church who came home from that conference believing that when they were praying with someone, every thought they had was something they were to prophesy. So if they thought of a green apple while they were praying with somebody, they would build a prophecy around a green apple. My thoughts are God's thoughts can get you into real trouble because our thoughts are fluid. Our thoughts flow from one thing to another. The words we speak are the form that we pour our thoughts into. The form of sound speech. You know what form boards are. That's what a contractor puts down. He pours concrete into it and smooths it. So the concrete becomes something good. But your thoughts that are flowing from one thing to another, don't just splop those out like a concrete truck just squirting them out on the highway somewhere. Just whatever. Whatever comes to your mind just pops out on your tongue like a gumball machine. Don't, don't begin to think that way. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we shouldn't get too impressed with our plan. I remember when we lived in California and I was traveling for 11 and a half years. There was a season when all the churches had a five-year plan and a 10-year plan and a 15-year plan. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember which book it was. One of the books I read said, if you want to make God laugh, give Him your five-year plan. <laughs> I think that's, that's probably true. Now, God's not opposed to us having a plan. I mean, He says that clearly in His Word. He says, wisdom is like the ant that sees a bad season coming and plans ahead. But we must always add to our plans a dependence on the Lord who directs our steps, for God to direct our steps. Don't, don't get too infatuated with your plan that you leave God out of directing your steps because sometimes your plan is not going to include where God is leading you to step. Hmm. His Word says it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But the imagery of that lamp in the Hebrew mind was not a searchlight that reaches a mile ahead, some big light that is way out there. It was a little bitty lamp that you would literally, about this long, that you'd hold in your hand to make sure there wasn't a snake or a sticker or a, a stick or something that you're going to put your bare foot on at night when you're walking. We're talking about something that shows you the next step to take, not that gives you 10 miles ahead. That's the lamp to our feet. It's the lamp to show us the next step to take. So God's Word is the lamp that gives us the next step right in front of us while we're waiting, while we're planning, while we're hoping. 
Here's number three. Do the hard, boring stuff. <laughs> Avoid the assumption that life is always going to be easy or convenient or feel good. Zacharias was just plugging away at his duties. He was serving in the order of his division, the Word says. That means he just came up. He was serving in the order of his division. He didn't demand any breaks. He didn't go to his boss and say, this job's too hard for me. I, I, I don't like coming in here at 8 o'clock. I need to come at 9 o'clock. He didn't argue about the stipulations of the priesthood. He followed what was required of him. Just showing up and doing his job. It says according to the custom of the priesthood. In other words, he didn't fight against the custom. He didn't say, you guys are doing this all wrong. You know, you ever have somebody on a job that's just always bossy? Always telling everybody else, always critical? Just got a critical nature about them? Always, have, always can tell you a better way to do something. Well, if you're doing it that way, you need to do it this way. That's the way I do it. You know the person I fear the most when we have a wedding practice? Randy, I bet you've had this. Randy Dementor over there. The person I fear the most is Aunt Susie that comes to the wedding practice and says, that's not the way we do it. So one of the things I always make this little speech at the beginning and say, the bride and the groom, and especially the bride, are the only ones making decisions. They get those wedding planners and, oh my gosh, that's even worse, that's even worse than Aunt Susie. Man. So I always tell them, the bride and the groom are making decisions. We can do this wedding any way they want to do it. If they want to stand at the back of the church and have a wedding behind everybody, we'll let them do it. I'll do it back there. You know, I always tell people, the bride and groom, they, they look at me bug-eyed like, are you really going to do that? It scares them to death. But then, you know, they get okay with it. <laughs> Some people just fight against the way you're doing, whatever you're doing. They're just that way. They've just got a bossy nature. It fell to his lot to burn incense. You ever think about the lot? It fell to his lot. Last time lot is mentioned is when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas in Acts. But the casting of a lot was nothing more than a chance. You could say it was like throwing a dice. It just simply it was established in the day of Moses how the priest would come according to the casting of lot of a lot. So no one could complain of unfairness. They could say, wait a minute, you got me on that first Thursday, and I don't like that first Thursday. They did it when they when the lot was cast, according to when the lot was cast. They didn't dodge the hard stuff. Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't dodge the hard stuff. If you have a strong work ethic, it'll help you in the kingdom of God. It will. Um, I think it was Woody Allen who said 80% of success is showing up. Mm -hmm. I think that's about right. 
Here's the fourth thing. Never stop worshiping. Never stop worshiping. Worshiping keeps us in that place of flexibility. It keeps us from having an atrophied faith. A faith that becomes set in a certain way, and I've got the formula, and this is the way you're supposed to have faith, and this is what you're supposed to say, and this is the way to do it, and I'll tell you. Hmm. Worship keeps us in a fluid place. He was wor- the reason I say that, he was working at the altar of incense. Here's a floor plan. Do we have that up there? This is the floor plan of the Old Testament tabernacle. The reason I'm, I'm showing it to you is you can see out here at the bottom, the gate, and then the altar and the laver, and then you go through the door to the holy place. And notice the last thing before the Holy of Holies where he said, there I will meet with you at the ark. Notice the last thing there is the altar of incense. The golden altar of incense right there. The last thing before that. So the high priest would pass the altar of incense before he came into God's presence. Get this. He had to smell like the incense of worship when he came into God's presence. See, I really believe that that, um, that altar signified worship. I really do. I think worship is our entry point into God's presence. I've said it to Rebecca so many times, Becca, excuse me, to Becca so many times that not only do I think that her role in our gathering times is as important as my teaching time, God may see it as more important because worship is what it's all about. There's no higher call than to be a worshiper and to smell like incense. Those elements, did you know those elements that were put together, God gave them the formula for the incense, for the spices that were blended together after the art of the apothecary, which means mortise and pestle. Just put it in there, grind it together. That's what we are in the body of Christ. We're ground together. We're ground together. And get this, no man was allowed to have that incense, that prescription, that Recipe, we would say. Nobody was allowed to have it. If you had it, it was a penalty of death. It was a penalty of death. You want say, oh, I like that. I want some of that in my own house. No, no way. There was a death penalty in the Old Testament for that. Why? Because you don't worship me, and I don't worship you. See, worship is only for the Lord. It's only for the Lord. And the incense was only for that point of coming into God's presence. Worship has to be to the Lord. That's a problem I have with some songs, frankly. If I hear a song and it sounds like it's almost all meism, I get a little bump on that. In fact, I get a big bump on that. Because I've heard whole groups of songs that are all about me and how important I am and how wonderful I am. Yeah, You're pretty great, but boy, do we have a lot of stuff in our life that isn't so great. Yeah. Hebrews 13, 5, 15. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 says, We are to God the fragrance of Christ. So while waiting... Stay in the presence of God in worship 
And that keeps us in tune with His possibilities. It keeps us in that place of flexibility so we can hear from God and we, we don't fall back on our assumptions that are unproductive. The fifth thing, keep praying. The angel said, your prayer is heard. Now, here's what I thought when I read that. I thought, you know, they would have really appreciated it if the Lord had said that to them about 50 years before that. You ever felt like that? You've endured for a long, long time, and finally God says to you, I heard your prayers back when you were 16 years old. And you go, boy, I sure wish I'd known that before. How many years had they prayed? How many years had they prayed? How many times had they prayed? How many seasons of life had they walked through and asked for a baby boy, asked for a baby child, asked for a child? When God doesn't seem to be in tune with the timetable, we lose hope and we start thinking He hasn't heard or He doesn't care. And those are deadly assumptions. One thing I learned, boy, I had a search. One thing I learned in my search after Jean died was that heaven is the full realization of the answer to all your prayers. Because she was so troubled, she was so troubled, because she had a prophetic heart, an intensity of prayer that I've never known anyone like her. I said it was like living with Jeremiah the prophet. She was so troubled about the prayers for which she hadn't seen an answer. Or showed me in that season of time when I was searching so deeply the joy that she had in seeing that every prayer was answered. It gave me help to know that reality. Because that was the fulfillment of her heart. Nothing was more important than that. But we're not always going to understand what God's doing, are we? We're not always going to understand what God's doing. Sometimes we're just on for the ride. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I love this portion where he talks about how we try to make God in our image. You know, pick up, pick up the knowledge of the holy again and just, just thumb through it and the knowledge of uh, how we try to make God in our own image. And he says, when we make God in our own image, we have a God who can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, never astonish us, nor transcend us. <laughs> yeah. Prayer keeps us from falling into those traps of assumptions that atrophy our faith and atrophy our progress. The bottom line, I think, is that as we mature in Christ, we say, if it be thy will, more, like James said. And so said, I'm going to do this, I'll go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this. We say, if God wills it. Because with God, all things are possible. And sometimes 
the things that are possible are also very surprising. <laughs> Especially when you start praying about new roads and new rivers. Yeah. Lord, give us understanding. Help us, Father, let our hearts be open for all of us, the new roads and the new rivers, Lord.